All right, well, it's great to see you all here today on Father's Day. We are finishing up uh, a sermon series we began in the spring called One-Liners, and uh, so we're going to go ahead and don't worry, it's not very long. I knew, I knew we had a lot this morning, so you don't have to get too comfortable, but hey, let's engage the Word of God before we go home, amen? Heavenly Father, open our ears and our hearts that as we open up the Bible and read from some of these scriptures that, God, you would teach us. This would be food for our soul and a light to our path. In Jesus' name, amen. If you have a Bible, you can turn to James chapter 1, verses 2 to 4. Only three whopping verses today, but these three verses uh, are big. They're huge. So uh, before we go, or before we start, quick opening story here. Dave, David Rover Rover, Rever, I'm not quite sure how to pronounce his last name. Many of you may have heard this story. He was an elite U.S. commando in the Vietnam War. He was a Navy commando in the Vietnam War. He was a special type of soldier, and because of that, he had special types of weapons at his disposal. And one time, he was in a battle in Vietnam in the year 1969, and he had just... uh, pulled the pin out of a phosphorus grenade. Those of you who know what phosphorus grenades are, they, ex- they ignite when they hit oxygen and it explodes and it, and it just kind of burns everything. It like burns the skin, burns everything. And so he had pulled the pin on this phosphorus grenade and just as he was about to throw it, he said it was the most amazing shot he had ever witnessed in his life. And this was by the enemy. This was by a Vietnamese soldier had shot the grenade as he was just about to throw it. So the grenade exploded and blew off half of his face. Now he was quickly rushed to a trauma center in Hawaii where he awaited many, many surgeries. And while he was there in the trauma unit, the burn unit, he had witnessed something that was very disheartening. He saw wife after wife being flown out to see their husbands. And and these husbands were, were in pretty rough shape. And he said, sadly, many of the wives would take off their wedding rings and leave it right there at the night table of the man, signifying that they were going to divorce them. So all of a sudden, the Navy comes up and says, hey, we've, we're flying your wife out. She'll be here within three days. He said it was the longest three days of my life, wondering, you know, how would my wife react? Admittedly, he said my wife was a stronger Christian than I was, and so being that I wasn't very strong in the Lord, I figured maybe I would have a wedding ring by my nightstand in three days. Those three days seemed to pass like three years, and finally my wife came. She took one look at me, half my face burned, the other half the man she used to know. And she leaned down and she said this, Honey, I love you. And I'll always love you. And I want you to know whatever it takes, whatever the odds, we're going to make it through this together. He said that in the weeks and months that followed, my wounds healed slowly and steadily, and even some of the scars somewhat faded, and I regained both my sight and my hearing. And then on national television, 
1979, 10 years later, when he was interviewed about this, he made one of the most surprising statements. When the interviewer asked him if he regretted anything, he said, regret? I am twice the person I was before I went to Vietnam. For one thing, God has used my incredible self-suffering to help feel other people's pain and empathy I never had before. And now I have an incredible burden to reach people for him. He said, but for another, now I know that I know that I know I am married to the most amazing woman ever. He goes, how could life get any better? I have a God who's using me, a wife who loves me. He said, whatever doesn't kill you makes you stronger. Whatever doesn't kill you makes you stronger. And that's our one-liner for today. Contrary to American mindsets, spiritual growth is not instant or easy. It's not meant to be. But because we live in a fallen world, because we live in a fallen world, bad things can and will happen to us all the time. Now we have no control over the fact that bad things happen, but we can control how we respond to them when they do. If you have a discussion sheet this morning, you can go ahead and flip it, and we're going to start right on our first point this morning. First point is this, number one, become a student, not a victim. Become a student, not a victim, when bad things happen. James chapter 1, verse 2 says, Consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you face trials of many kinds. One of the hardest verses in the Bible to read because it just flat out, plain don't make sense. Consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you face trials. I don't know about you, but trials seem to be anything but joyful. And yet this is what James is really counseling us to. This is what God is counseling us to do. When hard times come, be a student, not a victim. Many people live their lives almost like professional victims, always talking about how unfair life is. A victim says, why did this happen to me? Whereas a student says, how can I grow through this? A victim looks out and says, life isn't fair. And a student says, this could have happened to anybody. A victim says, I don't have time for anybody else. And a student, because they're growing forward through the trial, says, I don't have any time to feel sorry for myself. When I was in the Middle East, I learned this lesson pretty dramatically. I lived in a dangerous country, but there were roads you could drive, neighborhoods you could travel in, stores you could visit that were relatively safe. And we all knew them. You are taught them the moment you step foot into that country. Well, one time, I was 16, and uh, my father had worked for a car company. He was able to finagle and get me a car there. And so I could barely drive, but here I am driving around this foreign country. And uh, at the time, I looked a lot different than I do now. My hair was long. I had a pretty big mullet. I was very blonde, and my eyes were blue back then. They're green now. I don't know what happened. But anyway, that's not the point. <laughs> I think Bakersfield air poisoned my eyes. Now they're green. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> so I'm driving, and of course, I do what every driver on the road wants to do. You discover what? A short cut, right? 
So I didn't want to go through all the, you know, you got to go around to all this. And that's like miles out of the way. I find this shortcut. Now, it's an unknown neighborhood. And you're not supposed to travel in unknown, unlit neighborhoods if you're a Westerner. I did. And as I'm driving, all of a sudden, I go, wow, this road has got a lot of speed bumps. Kaboom, 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 kaboom. I'm like, what? They must want you to go super slow because I'm just like bouncing all around here. What happened? Flat tire. <laughs> so all of a sudden, I, I stop and I'm looking like the road doesn't have any speed bumps. You know, I didn't even know what a flat t- tire felt like. I could barely drive at this point, 16. So I get out, I pull over the side, I get out, and I look, and sh- sure enough, my tire's flat. And I didn't know how to change it. So I went back into the car, and I'm looking all around, and I'm going, oh, Naki, you got yourself in a mess this time. And I remember, you, ever, you know that feeling of fear? Kind of starts somewhere here and then begins to just travel down into your chest. I'm just sitting there gripping the steering wheel, and I'm thinking to myself, I could drive on the rim. I'd destroy the rim. Maybe not even make it home. But I, I'm going through everything I can, and I'm realizing I am stuck. Now, this is 1991. No cell phones. I can't get out and find a payphone because I can't get out. I'm not supposed to be walking in a neighborhood like this, especially looking the way I looked. And I knew that. So I thought, well, I could take my shirt off and put it around my face and maybe what, but then I'd be shirtless, you know. So I was like, there was no way I could get out of this on my own strength. And I wasn't a believer at the time, so I didn't even think to pray to Jesus. And all of a sudden, the, the janitor from the local church, while I wasn't a believer, I knew people from the church, he pulls up beside me. He's like, Tom? I knew the guy. Tom? And I'm like, huh? You know, like, where did he come from? He just came from nowhere, you know, in a dark road, and he finds me. I believe to this day this guy, like, might have been an angel in disguise, you know, how he'd ever found me. But he found me, and he's like, what's wrong? I'm like, I got a flat tire. And he's like, why don't you change it? And I went like this. You know, like, <laughs> Yes. So he's like, well, you need some help? Yeah. He gets out, and he's changing my tire. And he says, I don't get this. He said something like this. I remember. He says, you're barely old enough to drive. It's dark out. You're a blonde American in an unknown Arab neighborhood. You're almost out of gas, and you don't know how to change a tire? What were you thinking? I'm not sure what made me feel worse. The fear I experienced from the neighborhood or the humiliation of how right this guy was and how truthful he was being in the moment. But here's the thing. That night was pretty traumatic for me. And I had two choices. I could go home and say, I am never driving a car again. That's it. My driving days are over. Forget it. I almost killed myself getting in this car. Or... I could learn to change a tire. Drive the extra mile or two to stay on the well-lit roads and grow through it, grow stronger. At any time or at any moment, trouble is just a phone call away. A doctor might tell you, I'm sorry. 
you can't do that anymore. A voice may inform you that your daughter has just been arrested. You may get fired from your job without warning. Or someone you trust very deeply starts telling lies about you. The message this morning has really forced me to look at my own difficulties with this verse. And I will tell you, I have struggled with it as much as you struggle reading it. Because I don't understand the joy that the Lord is talking about. Because it's not a natural joy. It's not natural to have bad things happen and go, oh, wonderful! That's fake. And everybody can read through it. So what is the joy that James is talking about? It's a supernatural joy. It's a supernatural joy that is only made possible by God who enables us to see and respond from his point of view. God reminding us that you may be having hard times now, but I will see you through it. You will have the victory and you will grow through this. It's a supernatural joy in knowing when you got God in your life, nothing's coming your way that will ultimately sink you. may set you back, but it won't sink you. To experience the supernatural resilience, we have to become the student, not the victim. Number two, this one took me many years to formulate this point because it doesn't seem truthful, doesn't seem right. But actually, when you really think about it, it's very truthful. Sorrow can be selfish. I think we use the words pity party to describe it, right? We can have our own little pity party. And it's amazing how selfish and self-absorbed we come. Sorrow and pity parties can cause us to be excessively selfish. Almost every time deep pain and trauma come my way, I am amazed at how tempted to be selfish I become. It becomes all about me and my pain and my loss and the various ways that I deserve to sin because life has just been so horrible to me and I have just been dealt such a bad hand. And I will tell you this, it took a long time for me to get over that reaction. And I'm not so sure I entirely am over that reaction. But I can only offer you this because I think this is everyone. Verse 3, because you know that the testing of your faith produces perseverance. How does the testing of our faith produce perseverance? In many ways. But how do you get through that initial moment of selfishness? I don't do it perfectly every time, but here's one thing you can, you can write down. And it's this. Find something to be grateful for. Find something to be grateful for. Even when the sky falls and you're shooting for the moon, find something to be grateful for. You get fired from your job, find something to be grateful for. Doctor says you're not going to have the use of your hands like you used to. Find something to be grateful for. 99% of your life may be totally falling apart, but you find that 1%. And you thank God for it. Amen? That's how you get out of selfish sorrow. Number three. Faith isn't faith until it's tested. Faith isn't faith until it's tested. Until your faith is put to the test, it remains theoretical. 
right? It's a, it's a theory. It's not a fact yet. When the phone rings with bad news, when your son winds up in prison, when your best friend betrays you, when you lose your job, when your parents suddenly pass away, when life all of a sudden falls apart, then you discover truly what you believe in the depth of your soul. Then and only then. Until then, faith is mere speculation. Trials and testing answer the question, will we serve God when things don't go our way? Will we hold on to the truth when we feel like giving up? When things are going well, we tend to get puffed up about our accomplishments, but let the darkness fall a little. And it's amazing how quickly we go to our knees. I've been thinking about this, looking back on my own trials in life. Why has God sent trials my way? And you could probably answer it in many ways. You know, sometimes it's to humble us. Sometimes it's to teach us a lesson that can only come through the trial. Sometimes you don't have quite an answer. (laughs) It was bad, it stunk, and you're not quite sure what came out of it yet. Hopefully sometime in the future it'll make sense. But I'll tell you this right now. The biggest reason I look back and see why God has sent the majority of trials my way was to grow me for sure, but also to prepare me to minister to a people who live in a world of pain as well. Imagine if I never had a trial. What I would be talking about every Sunday would be mere theory for me, and y'all would know it. He'd be like, Pastor Tom with the silver spoon never had a hard day in his life. How can he relate to what I'm going through? But the fact that we are all tested by fire should give us a greater empathy toward one another and a greater resilience to be there for one another. Because maybe I'm having a good day today. Maybe I'm having a good day tomorrow, but maybe you're not. And I'm just as called to be there for you tomorrow if your day falls than if mine does. Amen? In the furnace, we discover God's goodness in a way we had never experienced it before. And when we live to tell about it, we are able to help lift others from the fires. And then finally, number four, perseverance is possible because God is in control. Perseverance is possible because God is in control. Our last verse, let perseverance finish finish its work so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. God has a goal with all of our trials. He tells us that goal. He's not hiding that goal from us. It's not meant to be some mystery about God we're supposed to find out. He's actually very clear. He's building some chutzpah in us. He's thickening our skin to some degree. But most importantly, that perseverance within, that inner resilience, God grows in us through trials. That perseverance which says, I will not give up no matter what happens and when trials have finished their work i didn't have it here but on verse five and six you'll see when trials have finished their work and perseverance has been built in us do you know what the reward is this one will throw you off so listen to me for a second because you're not expecting to say what i'm gonna say you know what the reward is you won't lack anything the resilient, persevering person 
is the content person. The resilient, persevering person is the well-provisioned person. It may not make sense, but here's the thing. After you go through this, you need faith, you know you have it, or you know you'll get it. You need hope, you know you have it, you know you'll get it. If we need love, we will have it. When perseverance does its work inside of us, we don't live in lack anymore, for we know God will see us through. I've had maybe three or four things that if I were to be honest, I've really tested God on it. I've tested him. I've said, you know what, God? Fine. You got this call in my life. I'm going to step out. I'm going to do it. And I'm going to show how you, didn't, how you didn't come through for me. And then I'm going to tell everybody. Because I love talking. And I'll talk, talk, talk. God, me and you, I take the dare. I'll dare to do it. I'll step out in faith. And, and then once I just fall off the side of the cliff, man, I'm going to write an essay on this thing. Twenty-three years, and God has won every battle, and I have lost every battle. Amen. If we needed money, money came. If we needed faith, faith came. If we needed hope, hope came. If we needed love, love came. Whatever it was, it came. Amen. Because God is faithful, and He is good. He's not the father we think he is. He's far better. Amen? Max Lucado tells a story about a woman who had a parakeet. This is funny. And she got lazy. Rather than take the bird out of the cage and clean the cage, she decided to take the vacuum wand from her vacuum and just suck up the chips on the bottom, right? Suck up all the, all that, you know? So, She's got the wand, but all of a sudden the phone rings. She bends to pick up the phone. The wand goes up and sucks the bird into the vacuum. And the bird lived. She got the bird out of the, the dustbin, and the bird's all dusty. And, you know, I don't, I don't even know what you call it, but you know that stuff in a vacuum? It's not dirt. It's not, it's, I don't know, it's dusty dirt or whatever. It's all full of that. So she takes the bird and she immediately puts it under the bathroom faucet to try to clean it all off and everything. Well, now you're not supposed to do that, right? Because the bird's shaking and shivering. It's lost its body heat and it's cold. So she recognizes that the bird's going to die from this cold water. So she gets her hair dryer and she blows the bird off and finally dries. The story is so absurd that the local news heard the story and ran with it. So a few days later, they called up the, the woman who owned the bird. They said, how's, how's the bird doing? She said, well, the bird's alive, but the bird doesn't sing anymore. He just kind of sits there and stares at me. I'd sit and stare at you too if you <laughs> sucked me in a vacuum, drowned me in water, and then dried me with a blow dryer. 
What's the point? While that may happen in the world, that doesn't happen with God. God can restore our song even when life sucks, drowns, and dries the life out of you. Whatever doesn't kill you makes you stronger. Amen? Buy your heads, close your eyes. Worship team, come on forward. <coughs> this morning, before we close, and if we could actually take the house lights down real quick. Before we close, I'd like to just give a chance to respond. In fact, why not, if you feel so led by the Holy Spirit, no manipulation or coercion here, but if you feel led, just, just pray this with me. We'll pray this together. Say, Lord Jesus, help me to become the student and not the victim. Help me to be thankful and not selfish in my sorrows. Help me to persevere through the tests and trials of faith. And God be with me every step of the way. I need you, Lord. You are my Father. You're better than I could ever imagine. I am going to you. You are my future. You are my destiny. You are my God. And I believe in you. I believe that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.